Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors are exploring the gospel right there. and what it's right really there. all Failure. about. <laughs> and we're starting a new series today called Faith That Works. Yes. And today's title is Everybody's Got One. What do we mean by that? Everybody's got one. Everybody's got one. Well, I think worldviews world views are like opinions, and opinions are like a certain part of the human anatomy. Everybody's so got one. Everybody's Everybody. got one. Nobody wants to hear it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah, and we're, that's kind of the idea that really before we, uh, before we talk about a faith that works, uh, you know, we're talking about a system of belief, of faith. And um, the contention here is, is that everybody's got one. And a lot of times we, if, when we have conversations with people who are, would say they're atheists or agnostic, they would say, well, I, I only believe in things that are provable and you believe in things that are unprovable. And so my, my approach to life is, is superior to yours mm-hmm. because... I can demonstrate the things that I believe and you can't. Um, but, but they're actually demonstrating a worldview when they say that. Well, yeah. I mean, it, maybe yes and no about about like scientific um, results from experiments and stuff. But when it comes to they, you know, they think, hey, everybody, people have dignity as individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? How do you know that? Right. Where, where does science prove that? It doesn't. I mean, if anything, if you take a purely materialistic worldview, it's it's nonsensical. So, and what I've discovered in in talking with people um, out on Facebook and stuff, unbelievers, is is that there's just this um, tendency to not think through the implications of their beliefs and to follow them to their logical conclusion. There's a a disconnect. It's like I believe that we originated from blind processes, but I also believe that humans have dignity and that they you know we should respect our fellow man that we should promote the well-being of others and and stuff like that Um, but those don't seem to connect and maybe somebody can help me understand that but it seems that all of these assumed truths are coming from some other worldview or some other basis and so that's kind of what we're going to talk about is that if we're going to compare apples to apples we're going to have to ask well what is it that people who don't believe the gospel do believe and that way we can compare so here's my worldview i have a set of beliefs and you have a set of beliefs and let's see since we're talking about a faith that works we're going to ask well which one works right so that's where we're headed that's where we hope to head is the gospel a worldview just as a preliminary question or is there a worldview that 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 lies behind the gospel is there, do you understand the distinction? Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you can help me if I don't, I'm sure. But, I mean, I would say that the gospel is is a worldview in that it is, um, or maybe it lies behind a worldview, that worldviews come out of our meta-narrative. You know, here what are what are the implicit truths out there? The, and that the gospel provides this meta-narrative um, that is, and in one moment, it is comprehensive, but it also provides a lot of um, individual freedom and um, in, interpretive latitude that we're able to take it and, and apply it, but it can be applied in a myriad of ways. Which is, I think you're touching on your outline on what a good worldview yeah. does. It's both, I think you say it's both plausible and useful. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. want to get ahead of this, but well, that that gets back to something I was I was going to ask about. Is, you know, we're starting the series of a faith that works. Yeah. Um, so if we're going to agree on a worldview <laughs> yeah. discussion, let's define what works is about. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, 
what can we agree on is a, is a lifestyle or a worldview that works mm-hmm. for us or for people in general? Yeah. You know, what's the framework that we're all kind of operating under there? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think most of us would like to live in a world where people are respected, where everybody is allowed to flourish, people are allowed to express themselves, where those personal expressions are able to contribute to a society that is healthy. And so healthy individuals, healthy societies, what is that, where does that come from? What is it based on? Uh, we can look at worldviews and, you know, not to be too critical, but you know, around the world, we can look at worldviews that maybe don't work. So um, it seems like um, Putin has a worldview that Russia needs to be primary, it needs to be dominant. It is, you know, that Russia has been kept down by the West, Western powers, and so that worldview, or his, at least his kind of meta narrative, and that, and maybe his worldview is that certain people at the top just need to tell others what to do. Kind of a belief in a in a top down authority, might makes right. So all of that would lead to an invasion. Most of us would feel like, well, that's not that's not that doesn't work very well. It's clearly not working well. Yeah, for maybe it works people. for Putin, right? But <laughs> it it's at the expense of everyone else that right doesn't fit into his plan <laughs> sure does it does it produce a world that people want to live in okay to me yeah. it doesn't um if we if we look at say islam uh at least radical islam i guess um it seems that where people are very conservative and radical about islam that uh, that there's suffering and that there's economic regression that a lot of things happen based on a on just a a dogma, and it doesn't matter what the outcome is. All that matters is that we're following this dogma. So mm-hmm. if everyone's terrorized and people are killing their own family members and stuff, then, then that's okay because the dogma says it's okay. But uh, to people looking from the outside, we're like, I don't want to live in a world like that. that. That's a nightmare scenario. That's not only just not ideal, but it is fueled by a worldview. So... When we talk about a worldview, really, I guess what I would say is a working worldview allows for individual flourishing, but also for a social flourishing as well. That, and that's really the dichotomy there, because if you're highly individualistic, your decisions tend to come at the expense of your society. And, and yet, if you're highly um, communal, the individual tends to be repressed mm-hmm. and... Um, a lot of unhealthy things happen to the development of the individual. So to me, the, I guess the, the hat trick, <laughs> you know, the, the cool thing about the gospel is, it, as we begin to unpack it, is that it's able to do both. And I don't see a whole lot of worldviews that, that do both equally well. And so that's kind of what we're going to get into yeah, hat trick is is three goals. Uh, so we'll have to think of what the, the third. There we go. Yeah, we'll come up with a third one. <laughs> yeah, well, you soccer if sure, <laughs> sure. Well, I think it, it does have to do with personal intrapersonal flourishing. If you had to come yeah. up with a third one, not only am I becoming a more valuable moral person, but intrapersonally, I'm being, I'm becoming more realized. I'm, I feel a sense of purpose. So if you really, if we do need a third, so we'll go ahead and grab one for soccer, soccer people. Yes. yes. <laughs> that there does need to be this intrapersonal health, in, interpersonal health, and then a, a societal kind of yeah. uh, flourishing as well. So can we, can we pull all of that off? 
So we're looking for a worldview that doesn't just serve the self, mm -hmm. but also benefits all the other people in society that we have to live with on this planet. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so when we say a faith that works, we're, we're talking about uh, a faith that informs a worldview that will do these things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, I guess, and, and that's what we're going to come to is, is if there can be a, a worldview that does what no other worldview can do, should we discount it? Uh, because it doesn't meet maybe our empirical expectations in every case. Or should we say, well, the fact that it works does argue for its validity, its, you know, its empirical validity. Um, and unfortunately, I think what we've found is, is that a misunderstanding of the gospel has, has produced belief systems that don't work. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you take, say, a very fundamentalist religious group, say Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, teach their people not to go to college. Well, does that, does that produce a healthy society? Does that promote flourishing? It certainly limits people. It does, yeah. Um, and, and so we can say, well, that's, that's pretty harmful. And, but is that, does that seem like it resonates with a, with a loving God? You know, with a creative God who created us in His image, to tell people, you need to you need to try not to be exposed to too much information, or mm -hmm. whatever else will happen. So, um, yeah, we we need to have a kind of faith that is, I, I would say, intrepid. <laughs> does does this faith produce people who are just? promiscuous in what they are willing to learn are they are they able to go out there and and just really engage in the conversation with our society um or be contributing they, members right are they afraid to find out things mm -hmm. you know are, are they uh, do they avoid conversations with certain sets of people that doesn't seem to, to be healthy yeah. but again that's a misunderstanding of the gospel i think we we can recognize that configuration in most Christians we have met, or at least many Christians that we've yeah, met. Yeah, and, and I hear that as being, you know, key to the assertion that we're making is that when the, the gospel is properly understood and properly applied, it will result in a worldview and a lifestyle that will, you know, benefit not just ourselves, but the society around us. And that that's compelling. It is. It's, I mean, I, I can certainly look back through history and see evidence of both. <laughs> the, yeah. the times that uh, Christianity has apply, applied itself properly, so to speak, and mm -hmm. has resulted in wonderful benefits, not just for believers, but for the society um, that they were in. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, we've seen the gospel misapplied as well you right. know, in, in so many examples that I think, you know, the... Uh, atheists and others are always good to remind us about sure so. yeah <laughs> well when we see the gospel as um just a component of the christian system when we see it as say the the way you get in 
Right. Uh, you're very, a very, just a very small sliver. You're going to encounter the gospel maybe in the first day of your Christian experience. After that, you're going to experience a system of Bible learning, of moral training, um, of conformity to a particular group. And so the gospel may be a referent like, well, you, have you shared your faith or whatever. But we see, I think we've traditionally seen the gospel as an evangelistic uh, tool or, or just people the door. in the door, yeah. Yeah, and and what happens, I think, is that the that that's just ter- a terrible misapplication of really the gospel, but also the Bible. The Bible seems to be pointing to this one message, and and trying to get us to it, but instead we we really treat the Bible as the main thing, and the gospel is just the the bait. You know, it's like the gospel is the bait, and the Bible is the switch, and um, but the Bible as a standard won't stand up to the kind of scrutiny that our society is now bringing it under, mm-hmm. to be like, frank. Like, for example, the fundamentalist Christians who, for whom the uh, Genesis accounts are an account of the origins of the universe, and therefore they have to uh, adhere to this young earth creationism. And therefore, it produces a community of people who are disengaged from the, from the scientific community, right? From careers in science, mm-hmm. this is this is sort of like the one of the American fundamentalist examples, uh, akin to the Jehovah's Witness example, right? And it does that really produce flourishing? Are we really engaging in serving society? Yeah, or are we just withdrawn? Mm-hmm. Well, and and people see the hypocrisy, the dichotomy that we appear to be anti-science, and yet we're happy to take advantage of the scientific breakthroughs. You know, to benefit from um, various medical innovations and things like that. And it's like, which one is it? If you really are going to be regressive, then you need to move into some community, kind of be Amish, accept a higher mortality rate for your kids and all of that. And we're not willing to do that. So we either we need to pick a side if we're going to be very regressive and kind of anti-intellectual, then we need to do that but to try to span that gulf and on out one side of our mouth say well we don't trust scientists and out of the other side of our mouth to accept the the fruit of their labor mm-hmm. uh, it seems really unfair um, but I, I think all this comes down to um, so we talk about a faith that works that's that utilitarian side does it produce something healthy the other thing you mentioned Kent that we were taught that we're going to talk about is is it is it plausible and um, so, you know, it, it could be a great worldview. Um, for instance, Joseph Campbell in his book, Power of Myth, suggested that we go to an Earth Mother um, meta-narrative because it's something as we become more global, what do we have in common? We're going to have to lay down our individual tribal meta-narratives so that we can become a, a worldwide people. This was Joseph Campbell's kind of hope for humanity because he says we need a myth. We need... A, um, a story that backs things up. And, and according to Campbell, he said, you know, that's why America struggles uh, in terms of just higher crime rates and stuff is because we don't have a shared ethos. There's not a definition of here's what it is to be an American for us. And so everyone's kind of seeking their own way and they're doing their own thing. And so, you know, the American ethos is, is get ahead. <laughs> well, that, that can cause, you know, white collar crime, regular crime that there's a mistrust and it's very expensive for a society to have to enforce and to, and to police its members. It's a lot easier if everybody has a shared ethos and we know here's what it means to be a 
an American and you act this way. And you've seen that in the East that there's at least there's an expectation of you just don't do X, Y, and Z yeah. because that's who you are. Your, your default mode is don't cause problems for everybody else. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you're not – nobody has to stand over you and, and hit you with a stick to, to make you do that. You just yeah. know this is what it means to be a part of this society. And then, so there's an ethos, and that comes out of a shared meta narrative. And according to Campbell, he was saying, look, he didn't believe any of the other meta narratives. He wasn't a Christian as far as I can tell. But he said, we still need one. And so his, his suggestion was that we would kind of all begin to embrace this kind of Earth Mother uh, worldview, that the Earth is our, you know, our, our progenitor or whatever, and that we should be, we should take care of her and all of that. Um, but we know that's not true. <laughs> so there's not, a, there's not plausibility to it. It may make it seems us, useful. Right. Like it seems on the surface of things, like it might be useful for human flourishing. Right. But it's not plausible. We can't really believe it. Right. So it doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah, there's always, and, and there are always going to be people who are like trying to get somebody else to believe that and live that way while they're over here, you know, clear-cutting forests and stuff like that. You know, as long as you're not raping the earth, I can do that and it won't have as much of an impact. And so as long as you know, people aren't genuinely believing it, it's never going to actually be applied is what I'm saying. And then that happens in Christianity too. You know, leaders will, will use Christian, uh, or at least what they would claim would be Christian ethos to apply to their followers, and then they themselves are not doing it. And, you know, there's just a lack of sincere faith. And it's probably because the belief system is not entirely plausible as it's constructed. So we really need, uh, when we talk about a faith that works, it's going to have to be plausible enough to make it through scrutiny. And, uh, and going back to the beginning when we were talking about atheism, I think what your point is that atheism and naturalism on the surface of things seems plausible. Mm -hmm. But your point is that it's not actually useful if you look at the outcome. Yeah, and, and it's that, not actually point? plausible either, uh, to be frank, uh, because it's always going to have to rely on things that are unprovable. The origin of the universe. Uh, you know, we know that somehow this universe in a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, inflated. It expanded into, you know, uh, roughly, the, at least the raw material of what we have. And, and it did it in defiance to every natural law that we know. Um, and there's, because it's, because it's in defiance to all the natural laws, there's no way to come up with a materialist creation narrative that because materialism is based on natural laws and we say, well, there's nothing supernatural, but, but we know objectively, we know that whatever created this universe is, um, I, I heard a term the other day, super celestial. So we super may, super celestial, right? We, we, it may follow natural laws. And I think that's what a materialist would say. So we won't say it's supernatural, but it's super celestial, which for all intents and purposes are the same thing. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, that there had to have been some sort of a, you know, that brought everything into existence. There's some reason why there's no antimatter left. There's some reason why things are at the distance that they're at from each other and matter. I mean, we went from thinking, say, at least the common worldview was that matter has always existed to asking why does matter exist at all? I mean, that's the, the whole uh, Higgs field and Higgs boson and all that. We're just saying, I mean, we really kind of 
we, we've opened all these Pandora's boxes, these cans of worms, and now we're at this point, scientifically, where we're like, we don't know why anything exists. And someone like Elon Musk, who I think we would say is a relatively intelligent human being, would say, there's a one in a billion chance that we live in base reality. He's saying, look, this is, this is a projection of something else. This is a simulation that whatever we experience and see is coming from another plane of existence. That's his presumption based on the evidence, at least that he, now he's not an astrophysicist and I'm sure there are things he doesn't know. But when people begin to entertain the notion that this is all a hologram, where we used to think everything was atoms, molecules in motion, now we're like, maybe this is just a hyper-pixelated um, simulation and we're willing to entertain that notion. All that to say that the, that the materialist worldview is, is really on rocky ground. It is shaking up and, and people have to, I think, do some work to retain that. And then you, you get to this idea of, of I, I hate to sound spooky and stuff, but the, the universal testimony of humanity around the world, if you, if you were to compile it, is that there's something outside of what we, uh, outside of the natural realm. Mm -hmm. You know, if there is a shaman uh, who is an 80-year-old woman that weighs 89 pounds, who can grab a 200-pound man and throw him across, say, 30 yards, how does that happen? You know, I mean, th that around the world, we find these encounters with people who would say that they're trafficking in the supernatural and that there are things that kind of attend to their experience that you really can't explain. You have to just turn your, a blind eye to if you're a naturalist. So um, I think that people who are naturalists, materialists should, should at least stop and say, okay, there's things I, there are things I can't account for from my worldview. Mm-hmm. As well as um, your the the naturalists um, the the typical Western naturalist beliefs about human dignity and uh, sure. and 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 behaving morally right yeah those so, cannot be proven or demonstrated from right. from the naturalist worldview right that's more that gets down to the utilitarian side maybe more that it just right. doesn't naturalism doesn't lead to that outcome they're manufacturing some sort of a connection you mm -hmm. know and they're saying. It does lead to it, but they can't demonstrate how. So you're you're arguing that there's there's plausibility issues as well as utility issues sure. with naturalism. Sure, and we have to admit that, there, that the same is true of fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, what we are hoping to do is to articulate the gospel of Christianity that is both plausible and utilitarian, is useful, um, and just just to argue that and that this is the ancient faith. It's not some accommodation like Christianity's is old and we need to update it that's that's not to me that that is not faithful you know if we say well we can't really go back to all this stuff it's very brutal and bloody and tribal and 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 let's update it and well that doesn't seem fair I, I feel like if if someone wants to critique Christianity then we have to keep we have to demonstrate if we're going to argue back, we have to demonstrate this is what it always taught. If we don't, we're just manufacturing a new worldview that's implausible. Uh, we're updating it. If we're claiming God gave this and, and God revealed this and that this is the way God has wanted us to live, if we claim that, 
then we better demonstrate it in in the public sphere, in the conversation. We better be able to say this there's strong evidence that this was what was always intended. Or else we really do invalidate our own point. And then demonstrate that this which was always intended is both plausible and useful. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of where we need to go. And and we've been talking about how all worldviews aren't created equal and that there's plausibility, utility. Um, I guess maybe we should jump to why why is the gospel highly plausible and um, why is it useful? Yeah, why is it there? highly plausible? It's based on um, a man, the idea that a man was actually himself God who bore the sin of the world somehow and rose from the dead. All right, so this yeah. to the to the modern mind this doesn't sound very plausible. Right. <laughs> and that yeah. this is the solution to all our problems. How is this going to yeah. help us? Right. Right, right. Well, let's let's back up uh to uh the idea of creation. Is it more plausible that there are uh most recent guesses are I guess are that there are 1 to the 500 500th power universes in the world which is more there are more that would suggest that there are more universes are not in the world there are more universes out there than there are atoms in the universe that we inhabit that that in order for a universe like ours to exist that the chances against that are 1 to 1 to the 500th power mm. okay so a, a a number of 1 to the 500th power so you got 500 zeros behind it, behind it that's how many universes that that would take to that would need to exist for a universe like ours, the probability for the universe like ours to exist. That so, has the galaxy that we're in, the planet that we're on, with human life capable. Right, right. And, and so that, that seems implausible. I mean, again, that's more than there are atoms in the universe. Okay, that's more universes than there are atoms in our universe. That's a lot, okay. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe there is, but is that more plausible that there are that many universes that, yeah, the, the idea is that, that, somehow out there there's some sort of a, a medium that is allowing all these universes to just inflate like bubbles you know here's another one there's another one and and that as these are inflating that they're almost an infinite number that are inflating out into whatever medium they exist in um is that more plausible to think or is it more plausible that there's an intelligent you know that there's a creator who transcends time and space and and brought this universe into existence? I mean, you could flip a coin, I guess. Uh, to me, there makes it makes more sense just because of the existence of consciousness. Um, it doesn't seem that unconsciousness would give rise to consciousness. That the sophistication of life and the information that's required to create any sort of you know being. To me, it's it's more plausible to think that there's a creator out there who is supernatural. Now, start there. Argue. It seems more plausible that there is a there is a god, or at least as plausible. Yeah, right. I, I think we're some. <laughs> you can right. even say it's at least as plausible. Exactly. As it, but so, that's all it really needs to be because yeah. we're just comparing: is there plausibility, not is this provable? Right. But is it plausible? So is it just as plausible? Just as plausible. And I think it's just as plausible, at least from what we understand. Um, and, and then you factor in things that seem to, like the observation paradox of Schrodinger's cat, right? 
that these particles don't they don't have uh, mass or anything until we observe them that they're just energy and uh, when they're unobserved and then their mass when we observe them what is that you know how does, how does a purely natural universe give rise to things that obey or, or at least accommodate human observation to me that argues that there's a consciousness behind this and that there's a role specifically for humanity in nature or, or at least nature exists or responds to our awareness of it. Now that would seem to argue in favor of, let's say, the cultural mandate, like we're created to have some sort of influence over nature. That nature does seem to accommodate us. And we can't explain why. Nature responds exactly. to consciousness, to humanity, mm -hmm. right. because um, it was made to do so. Exactly. There's, there's a relationship there that's been established. Yes, and on a very fundamental level that is something we weren't perceptually aware of until we had the instruments to study it, but it seems that nature is somehow responding to us. That makes no sense. If we are just a product of nature, then it, would, it makes more sense that we would be entirely under the influence of all these natural forces and not the other way around. So again, it argues for there being some sort of intelligence behind existence, a consciousness behind consciousness. How do you get from uh, um, accepting that it's plausible that there's a divine being, there's a consciousness, to this is a good God, a powerful God who wants to reveal himself uh, to humanity um, and would, um, so on and so forth. Yeah. How do you get to maybe the like the nature? Maybe that's where the gospel comes in. How do you get? To, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you get to the nature and the attributes of God and the revelation? Yeah. Right. Because yeah, I, I think there would even historically, there's a lot of people that would um, maybe claim they're of the Christian tradition, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking even their early American roots. You examine their their worldview, and it's actually maybe what you call a deist yeah. worldview. It's like, well, maybe there is a creator that put all this together, I'll, I'll maybe mm -hmm. buy into mm -hmm. that, but that's as far as it goes. Yeah. You know, and so after that, it's it's natural order and uh, people behaving and responding to the natural order. Sure. But I think the gospel makes, makes a very specific claim that God is not the clockmaker God. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that I would, res I would, I guess I would go to just the testimony of humankind that, uh, the gospel makes this claim, ask for, ask for what you will, and it will be given to you. <laughs> and, and that there is this testimony throughout the past 2,000 years of people asking and receiving, uh, of God actually doing things, of uh, documented, historically provable, I guess, miracles, not just in a distant past, but throughout the Christian era. It seems that there are these encounters, that there are these worldwide encounters with um, malevolent beings and and to me if you if you demonstrate there's an encounter with a malevolent being that ceases and desists when you bring up the name of Jesus that seems to argue strongly in favor of a spiritual reality of the efficacy of the gospel and of who Jesus is and and, and a lot of people ignore that they discount it but that that is the testimony of humanity for the past couple thousand years that people have had these kinds of encounters again and again and again and 
I guess what I would suggest, and I, this is what I suggest to people who are atheists, I was like, do primary research. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, number one, don't expect to do hard science because we aren't dealing with impersonal forces. We are dealing, we, at least the claim is that we're dealing with personal forces. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got to do soft science. Take a sociological approach to your spiritual research. Take a psychological approach to your spiritual research, which means you do qualitative studies, not quantitative, qualitative. You do interviews, and then you look for similar words or phrases. You look for similar experiences. So go to your local bar or, you know, and, and interview 100 people and ask them, have you had an encounter with something that you couldn't explain, with something that you would call supernatural? Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. Look for patterns. Right. And, and, and interview people, record those interviews, and then look for things that seem like similarities. Um, my contention would be that you would find a significant percentage, let's say 10% of people who would say they've had it. Because I've had conversations with people who they, they grew up with somebody else in the house, <laughs> you know, and that somebody else would close doors and turn stuff on and they could see them and sometimes other family members could see them. And I've had lots of these kinds of conversations with people. I've had conversations with people who've seen some dark figure um, just dive into somebody. They were sharing a hotel room, and the guy in the next bed, this dark figure came in and just dove into his chest. And that guy became violent, hostile. I think he attempted suicide multiple times from that moment on. Uh, So... Those are kinds of qualitative, and and we can discount that. We can say, well, that's a hallucination or whatever. But when you stack up enough of these kinds of things, it becomes compelling. And so that's what I would ask people to do um, is just really look at reality, broaden your horizons, and ask, is is reality maybe more than I think? So if you don't want to just, you know, if, if we say a priori, you can't use the Bible to argue this because that would assume I already believe this, then what I would ask is, Consider, is it equally plausible that the universe came from an intelligent being? Consider whether consciousness is at the basis of our existence and that human consciousness, for some reason, has an influence. Consider the general witness, the general testimony of, of the experience of, of Christendom and of, of people around the world with spiritual forces. To me, that all kind of argues in favor maybe you can come up with another narrative that that accounts for those things but i don't know of one yet uh, and so it to me all of this says well the gospel's plausible it's it's at least an explanation of experience i mean and, and when i ask people is like uh, if you have you guys read confessions augustine mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Uh, and for augustine what he discovered was and he was doing a lot of this and we assume ancients were completely um, uh, just naive and, and gullible, but not so much. And Augustine was like, I, he wasn't a believer. He was part of another Gnostic worldview. But as he looked through his life and he began to question whether there was such a thing as sin. And, um, and he looks at this incident with these pears, how he and his friends came and they just raided this guy's pear orchard and and destroyed a, a significant percentage of his crop. And he's like, why did I do that? If, if what people call sin is just simply 
us indulging our natural desires in a way that is unrestrained. Well, we can, we can say, well, that sin is just, it's just the natural, you know, evolutionary tendencies and that we're, we're growing past some of this and, and morality would be a higher evolution and an expectation that we would somehow temper our lusts uh, in a way that's better for society. And why we would do that, I don't know. But anyway, but Augustine was saying, look, I, I didn't benefit from that. I didn't, it wasn't something that I enjoyed really, but I did it because I don't know why. I just wanted to cause harm to somebody else. There was this malice within him. Right. And yeah. this rebellion within him that yeah. he discovered. Sure. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, how do we account for those sorts of behaviors, the kinds of things that people do that seem to defy, that, that are worse than what even an unrestrained animal would do? You know, so you turn a tiger loose in a populated area and he kills eight people. You know, we don't blame him. We don't think, well, that was bad. Uh, you know, he shame on him. But, uh, you know, we're, we're capable of, of evil that transcends that sort of a, just, a, just a reckless violence, but a, but a very planned, intentional harm <laughs> done to other people. Sometimes we even think it's that we're doing good while we're doing the harm. And so um, I feel like a naturalist worldview doesn't account for human nature in every case. And usually when people genuinely become Christians, it's because they've come to, to face this power of sin at work in their own life. Mm -hmm. And they've come to see that they are doing harm to themselves and to others. Right. And that the worldview that they've got, the belief system they got, isn't working. Mm -hmm. And can't account for that and can't certainly can't solve it. Sure. And, and I mean, I guess it, it, this gets down to also the plausibility side, but there is no redemption in any other worldview. So if we're going to believe that, that people are inherently valuable and worthwhile and that we should um, somehow find a way to accommodate them, even if they violate society's norms, because we're very individualistic and we, we hold on to that belief. But, but what do we do with the sociopath? How, how can we help people who have demonstrated repeatedly a tendency to harm other people and, and that something's broken? I mean, if our morality counts on empathy and we find somebody who doesn't have any empathy, what is society to do with them? Are we just supposed to incarcerate them, try to keep them alive, keep them comfortable as though they were in some sort of a vegetative state? Is that the moral thing to do? Without a redemption component, a worldview can easily unsip. Okay, so maybe we should, we should incarcerate all the sociopaths, or maybe if we're really being practical, we should execute them and the pedophiles mm -hmm. be rid of them they're they're irredeemable okay what about the um the racists that are unapologetic maybe we should be rid of them what about mm -hmm. people this, who are this is all like, right this is like what cancel culture does right this is not this, there's no redemption there's right. just cancellation well, right I think there's been different variations of this throughout history sure <laughs> yeah sure yeah. Yeah. Mo modern times but yeah i mean i think every society is always yeah, responding to the threats mm -hmm. to the integrity of their of what they view their society mm -hmm. is right. And if our worldview doesn't have a redemptive peace, then the only thing we can do is we can join Joseph Stalin, who says death is the solution to all problems. You know, if if 
someone is causing an issue, then you kill them because then there's the problem solved. Yeah. Either you you exile, excommunicate them, or right. you just eradicate them completely. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. And exiling, excommunicating is effectively assassinating them. It's just assassination without the the guts, I guess, without the the ability to own up to what you really believe. Canceling is just killing somebody, well, just without we'll treat you like you're dead. Without the us, stomach, yeah. exactly. Uh, so how does society move ahead? How do we learn from one another without a redemptive component? And, you know, I was having a conversation with a young man who was had become anti-theist, uh, you know, kind of very hostile to the gospel, enjoyed trying to tear the people's faith down. And, and I asked him, it's just like, how, do, how does your worldview approach redemption? What do you do for people who have proven themselves to just be serially harmful mm -hmm. in in society he says i don't i mean if you can't if you can't engineer a society where children are educated in your worldview from the earliest memories and and own that and take hold of it if you can't do that then there is no hope if children are allowed to be raised by fundamentalist yeah. parents then there's no hope for them if they retain that worldview and Society can't endure their existence. Yeah, and I, I think society has, different societies have made, you know, little trips into those territories. Mm -hmm. I mean, dare we say Nazism? Right, <laughs> yeah. But, I, I mean, uh, even communism, I, I think experiments in eugenics, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like that, that was the outcropping of a purely naturalistic worldview that says, well, if we're going to be, if we're going to be completely rational, then there, there are certain types of people or society that, um, you know, the most utilitarian thing to do would be to completely remove them from existence. Exactly. Yeah, if we, if we don't have a redemptive component, and I can't think of a worldview that does have a redemptive component um, outside of the gospel, to be frank. I, I mean, there are religions that say you have to do things X, Y, and Z, but they don't provide a way back if you haven't. Like, maybe, maybe Allah will forgive give you those things but what if you're what if you are a sociopath what if you are addicted i mean allah may say i want you to stop that but how how can i stop that where, where do i get the resources to stop that is the threat of eternal punishment in hell enough to get somebody to stop that well no it's not some christians frankly so. <laughs> frankly no I, it just doesn't work in anybody's worldview whether you're a christian or a muslim or anybody else the, the threat of eternal suffering in hell because it's out there in the distance somewhere and maybe I'll repent. I mean, that it just doesn't work. So without redemption, the worldview, I think, essentially falls apart. It has to, uh, which argues strongly for. So really, if we take maybe the four pillars of a Christian worldview and we say creation, sin, the fall, um, redemption, and then consummation, uh, that God's going to fix it. And we haven't addressed that, but... The first three, it seems that reality lines up with those at least as well as in any other worldview. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Creation, fall, redemption. Yeah. Well, and just the witness of, of so many people who have um, become Christians, experienced a conversion. Um, I, I have a degree in psychology. My abnormal psychology teacher said there's only one documented solution to sociopathy, and that is religious conversion. That, that the only way a sociopath receives a conscience again is by giving his life to Christ. Hmm. That argues strongly for me uh, uh, for the gospel. So just as if we really want to take all the data in, we have to include these things that I've been talking about and say, 
what accounts for all of this? To me, the gospel does, it's a bigger bucket, <laughs> you know, and that it accounts for the supernatural experience. It accounts for the confusing and, and conflicted behavior of people. It accounts while for not where denying, we came from. While not denying the, uh, the empirical results of science either. Right, exactly. Yeah, it does. It just, it can accommodate all of these things. And we can talk more about how that does. Um, but because it can, it, it seems to me that it's preferable to ones, to worldviews that must exclude certain data sets or elements of the human experience or, or insist on taking an agnostic like, well, that just, it's the way it is without at least attempting a hypothesis about why it is some certain way. So to me, it seems that the, that the gospel, the, that the real Christian worldview, the ancient Christian worldview, takes into account more of reality. You factor in that it's 2,000 years old. That seems to speak to some foreknowledge, some wisdom beyond what we have access to. So it uh, looks like we're about out of time. That's, that's a good place to stop. Stay tuned for more. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.